from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig with details. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Hello, hello, hello. Wow, somebody's excited. Somebody's singing songs. I am excited. Yeah. I am excited. Part four of Colette. Part cat. Part quatre. Very excited for this one today. And also, shout out to Diana because, I mean, it's not uncommon that we, I mean, it, the, it's the norm for us to each individually research an episode and then mm-hmm. we bring it to each other and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, sitting with one episode for a long time can be overwhelming. Yeah. And Diana's done all four parts of Colette <laughs> while I've been handling the in-between episodes. Oh. Uh, so shout out because that's that's impressive. Thanks, babe. Well, that's partly why I'm excited for it to come to a close, because <laughs> I've really enjoyed, again, learning a lot about Colette. Yeah. Um, like I said, the only thing I knew about her was that she had one quote in like a famous quotations book I had. And right. I finally remembered what it was. It oh. is, you will do foolish things, but do them with enthusiasm. Oh. A great quote. Definitely. Story of your life. Story of my life. Yeah. Foolish and enthusiastic. Absolutely. And... <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, I didn't know shit about her. So it's been really interesting to basically live with her for four weeks yeah. in a row, trying to put these episodes together. Yeah. Um, but it'll be nice to kind of move on to a new new uh, topic or area right. of the world <laughs> or right. whatever. Right. And plus, as you know, you get too into it and you have a real hard time leaving anything out for the sake yes. of timing. Yes. Because <laughs> everything feels very important. Has happened a few times mm-hmm. on the show. Very true. But this is a great one to get sucked into and there's mm-hmm. so much going on and that there's so much coming up in this final part. Very true. I mean, this woman lived uh, vibrantly <laughs> the whole time. Foolishly and enthusiastically. Yes, definitely. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And yeah, sh- uh, thanks again to Rachel, Rachi Vaughn on Instagram, who suggested Colette because, yeah. again, you sent us on a whole journey here. <laughs> uh-huh. And we got four episodes out of this. So yeah. thank you so much for the suggestion. It's been really, really cool to dive in. Very cool. So yeah, let's jump in to part four, the final part of our Colette series. Yeah. And when we last left the story... Colette had gotten through the First World War. Uh, she had seduced her young stepson. Oh, uh, 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 Bertrand de Juvenel. That's right. Yes. She had broken up with her second husband, Henri de Juvenel. <laughs> Bertrand's dad. Mm-hmm. Yep. And she had gotten involved with the new medium of cinema. Ooh. And of course, she is writing, 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 writing. Now, Cast your mind back to part three and remember that she asked to have dinner with Bertrand one last time before they broke up for good. Uh-huh. And he did not bring a date, but she did. She brought Maurice Goudiquet, a man 17 years younger than her. Maybe uh-huh. she was just trying to make Bertrand jealous, like right. I could still get him uh-huh. or whatever. But actually, Maurice had a much bigger part to play in her life than just a little arm candy. Okay. So um, let's find out how Colette found her true love at long last. Yes, let's go. Hey there, friends, come listen well. Eli and Diana got some stories to tell. There's no matchmaking or romantic tips. It's just about ridiculous relationships. A lover might be any type of person at all. An abstract concept or a concrete wall. But if there's a story where the Second glance, we'll put it in a show ridiculous romance. A production of iHeartRadio. So, yeah, many of the sources that um, I was using for the previous three episodes kind of skim over the end of her life and most of this relationship with Maurice. So, we got most of this information for today's episode from Judith Thurman's biography, Secrets of the Flesh. Mm. She got real into their relationship, and it's awesome. We're going to pick up in 1925, right before Colette broke things off with Bertrand. But she's in the middle of dealing with her divorce from Henri. So he knows about the two of them right, doing right. it. Right, right. And I remember, you know, in part three, we talked about her breaking up with Bertrand mm-hmm. uh, after they spent a night together. And then she they they spoke and just decided this isn't going to work out. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like Which the- I found very strange mm-hmm. after everything that she had done to kind of pursue him. Yeah, Yeah. and, like, right before, they had been like, we're doing this for real. Let's stay together forever. Yep. And then then the harsh light of day, I guess. (laughs) They were like, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. But um, before all that happened, Colette had this good friend, a famous French actress named Marguerite Moreno. Mm. And Marguerite got invited to dinner with some rich aristocrats named André and Bernard bloch levelois which is such an aristocrat name. Wow, yeah. I love a hyphened uh-huh. name. <laughs> and Marguerite asked if she could bring Colette along to this dinner. And this might have been because she wanted to get her friend away from this stupid little stepson situation that she uh-huh. is in. 
she knows that there's going to be a guest at this dinner. An extra man, as they called him. Oh. <laughs> because he was having an affair with André Bloch-Levalois, so I guess he's like the extra man in her marriage. Okay. And there's nothing Colette likes better than an extra man. <laughs> right? Marguerite knows that. Except maybe an extra woman. Except maybe an extra woman, exactly. <laughs> and this one was a real catch, all okay. right? He's a stylish, handsome, cultivated Jewish bachelor of 35, kind of reserved, well-dressed, eloquent. He's a nice business selling pearls. He owned an expensive chauffeured car and he wrote poetry. Mm. And his name was Maurice Goudiquet. Oh. Now Maurice was born in Paris to a Dutch father and a French mother who were in the city to celebrate the brand new Eiffel Tower. (gasps) Tour Eiffel had just gone up. And everyone was like, that is gonna brainwash us all. It's a big (laughs) radio tower that's Kind of getting on minds. There were probably some 5G types. The that Riddler did say that. is using it to suck out all our brain waves <laughs> and make himself smarter. But these two and their son Maurice then went back to live in Amsterdam for 13 years before moving back to France again. So Maurice was often referred to as Colette's Dutchman. Mm-hmm. He spent so much time there. Now, as a teenager, Maurice first came across Colette's writing, and as Thurman writes, quote, It was for him, as for so many sexually seething young bourgeois readers, a call to freedom and revolt. He claimed to hear in it the voice of a soulmate. He even turned to his parents at some point and said, one day I'm going to marry this woman, Colette. Oh, wow. Which is really something. I I don't remember ever saying like, Judy Bloom, one day. <laughs> oh my god! Me. I did love a Judy Bloom book. Now. Sure, I actually didn't read that much Judy Bloom. I'm trying to think of one that I read. Who wrote? Um, who wrote Dealing with Dragons? Not um, Judy Bloom. Not Judy Bloom. Obviously, that's a great book, though. Oh, I love Dealing with Dragons. Uh, it is by Patricia Reed, W R E D E, mm. and I loved that book. That's I so loved good. it so much. Uh, Cherry's Jubilee. <laughs> um, it's a great dragon book. Anyone's looking for a good dragon book, Princess and a Dragon. Right, and they become like friends. Yeah. Yeah, it's so good. Yeah, it's great. Anyway, I didn't marry Patricia Weld or Patricia Reed, <laughs> whatever it Sorry. is. Sorry, <laughs> it's just me. <laughs> so, like, this must have been pretty exciting for Maurice when he joined them at dinner. He sits down and sees Colette, uh-huh. the Colette. She was even seated next to him. But never meet your heroes. You know, she did not make a very good impression on Maurice at first. And he later wrote that he felt like she was, quote, acting her own character. And he was kind of put off by her. Hmm. Yeah, I think she actually would say that sometimes with her writing. Oh, yeah. She would tear up pages of writing and say, I was playing Colette instead of being Instead of being Colette. I get it. Mm -hmm. I get it. Now, Maurice describes himself as having kind of a depressive personality, sort of a passive kind of guy. Like, he he wanted literary and intellectual glory, but he didn't really do much to actually make that happen. Hey, like, I can relate to I that. I know, right? I was like, this I get. <laughs> this I get. And when he met Colette, he was in a pretty depressed period of his life. He wrote, quote, Not much gave me pleasure. I felt my life was at an impasse. 
And he was so depressed, in fact, that he planned a trip to Italy and then lost interest and canceled it. Excuse me? Now, you have to, I, do you know how <laughs> depressed I would have to be to cancel a trip to Italy? Like, if I'm depressed and I already planned a trip, I'm going to be like, may as well be depressed there. Yeah, right? <laughs> then here, I mean, like... <laughs> Not a Dorothy Putnam guy. <laughs> oh, no, oh, yeah. She would have gone to Italy because she was depressed. Exactly. <laughs> She's like, I woke up feeling kind of sad today. Mm-hmm. You know what I need? You know what the doctor ordered? Cruise to South America. Time to cruise to South America. But Maurice went the opposite direction. He was like, screw Italy. I'll just stay in France. Boo. And he really needed a pick-me-up at this time. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, one came in the form of an invitation to the Riviera. Oh. That would cure my depression. <laughs> <laughs> now, the Bloc Levelloise were spending their holidays there, and Maurice and Marguerite Moreno both decided that they would join them. And so they drove down in Maurice's car with his chauffeur. Mm-hmm. And after a few days there, Marguerite announced that Colette was coming to join them. And Maurice replied, quote, ah, and we were so peaceful. (laughs) (laughs) Which is crazy. Uh, So, yeah, she really didn't leave a very good impression on him from that dinner. He Uh was not looking forward to seeing her again. And they were kind of surprised because he was so polite normally. He didn't really share his personal feelings about things a lot. So Mm. when he said that, they were all like, oh, dang. Okay. He don't like her. Now, this is around the part of the story where Colette is sort of following Bertrand de Juvenel, her stepson and lover, uh, to the coast because she knows that his mom is trying to get him married off, mm-hmm. literally to get him away from Colette. That's right. So she's in this little battle with her stepson's mother about yes. whether or not she's going to marry him. Her husband's ex. Her, her ex-husband's husband. ex. Her ex-husband's <laughs> ex. It's a, you know, it's a complicated family. Okay, a lot going on. <laughs> But Colette wasn't just there for Bertrand, as we may have thought in part three. Right. It wasn't all about him. She had been very taken by the debonair jewelry guy. Mm -hmm. So she and Marguerite had put their heads together and decided to try and make this Riviera thing happen. Right. She's like, you'll go first. Get him to go. Uh I'll follow up later. Exactly. It's going to be great. She told Marguerite that he was already, quote, something to her, but whether it was a good meal or a solid mystical engagement, she didn't know. <laughs> uh, she's like, we might just hook up and it's just going to fill me up. Okay. Right. <laughs> is this a snack or is this a meal? Okay. <laughs> so Colette goes to the Riviera. She stays in the same hotel as Bertrand and she brings Maurice to this dinner. Mm-hmm. The next day, you'll remember she spent the night with Bertrand that night, and they decided to break up the next morning. And after she broke up with Bertrand, Maurice was suddenly and unexpectedly called back to Paris, and he was going to have to get an express train back. So now he's got this empty car and the chauffeur, and he offered that to Colette. She, quote, accepted with joy, liking nothing better than a leisurely road trip. Hard. Me Sounds too, like Colette. you. I know. I was like, I got to include this. Although I, would, I will relate. I would kick that chauffeur out and be like, I'm driving. I'm driving. Buddy. <laughs> you, um, you put him in the back. You yeah. can finally enjoy the champagne. <laughs> Actually, let's put the chauffeur on an express train. <laughs> I'll drive. <laughs> Maurice thought that he would get like a nice thank you note for lending her his car. Maybe like an inscribed book mm-hmm. would be a nice treat. And quote, our relations would stop there. It was all for the best. That's the right. end. Dust your hands off. <laughs> That'll do, Colette. We don't need to engage past this point. We are done, though, Washington. Uh-huh. 
But after several hours in the train station, he tried and failed to secure a berth on the night train. You do have to plan these things sometimes. Mm -hmm. So Maurice had to come back to the hotel, and he asked Colette if she would allow him to ride back to Paris (laughs) in his car with her. And he said it was a favor, quote, which you are perfectly free to refuse. But, of course, she just laughed in his face for even asking. She's Uh like, it's your car. Of course you can. You Um. idiot. Speculation Station, Mm -hmm. Colette went down to that train station, (gasps) snatched up all the tickets. (laughs) Bought up all the tickets. (laughs) So that he wouldn't be able to, or she just went down to the station manager and was like, hey, I'll sign a copy of this novel for you if you tell, if you see this man. This is his picture. (laughs) Tell him there ain't no seats left. (laughs) (laughs) Where did you get a picture of me? I love it. Actually, (laughs) Judith Thurman did write that he... In his memoir, uh-huh. in Maurice's memoir, he wrote that he, like, spent a lot of time talking about how he nearly heroically tried to find a birth and just couldn't do it. So he had to go back. Oh, yeah. So I'm wondering if she kind of felt like he just wanted to share the car with Colette. Uh-huh. So maybe uh-huh. he's a little more taken with her than he's willing to okay. admit right okay. away. Okay. Speculation station. He's we like, I tried true. so hard to get a train ticket. I mm. asked one guy. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, they left the next morning for Paris together, and they spent this this leisurely road trip together. And once they were back in the city, she did send Maurice a thank you note and the inscribed book that he expected. It was The Vagabond, by the way. Mm. But she also included an invitation to lunch. Mm. And it was on like Donkey Kong because he came for the meal, but he stayed for dessert. Oh. You get what I'm saying? Okay. Colette wrote, quote, I was quick. <laughs> so maybe she didn't even she let was. him get to the second course. You know, uh-huh. she's like, what are we doing here? Uh-huh. And unlike her other marriages, from the start, it was pretty harmonious. Okay. They went about their days separately, but they would meet late at night and stay up talking and doing other stuff way into the wee hours. And they even went to Saint-Tropez in the south of France together. And Colette loved it so much that she sold her house, Rosven, the place that Missy had gifted her in 1911, and where she had spent pretty much every summer since. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, if if those walls could talk. Okay, for real. So she's, like, years later getting rid of this house she'd been in for a long time. Mm -hmm. And she bought a new spot in Saint-Tropez. She just loved it there so much. But many of Colette's friends didn't like Maurice. Thurman writes that the snobbery that Maurice had to deal with was galling. He was, quote, an obscure Jewish upstart who sold jewelry and aspired to the place in Colette's life once filled by the brilliant Willie, the noble Missy, and the powerful Juvenel. One of her friends, a poet named Paul Valerie, called Maurice Mr. Goodcock, which was sort of a play on the goodiquette in Franglais. So it was like, Good kiket. Good kiket. Mm-hmm. Good kiket. I get it. So, yeah, you can, you can see why Valerie was nominated for the Nobel Prize in Literature. <laughs> oh, with, with portmanteaus like that. Twelve different times, by the way. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, there you yeah go. exactly. When you got that kind of turn of phrase. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure if good if Mr. Goodcock was meant to be like a compliment of Maurice. Or if it was meant to be like, oh, well, you know, she's going with the jewelry salesman because he has a good cock. Like, I'm not sure if it's a denigration or a compliment. Regardless, Maurice was having to deal with some serious bullshit like early on in their relationship. And Colette's daughter with Henri de Juvenel, Belle Gazou, remember Mm -hmm. the the little gazelle? She 
hated Maurice. Thurman writes, quote, her parents' acrimonious divorce, followed immediately by Colette's immersion in a new affair and her abrupt defection from Rosven, had naturally been overwhelming for Belgazu. She would never accept or like Gudiket, whom she called the crocodile and who was wary and reserved with her. Mm-hmm. Man, we got the crocodile and the, the panther crocodile. and all these aggressive animals. True. Yeah. And she's a gazelle. Right. But Colette was very happy and super in love. Things were going great. She went on tour playing Leia in a stage adaptation of her book, Sherry, and Maurice went with her. Then she wrote the sequel to Sherry. It's called The Last of Sherry. Ooh. And she wrote it kind of with a single-minded focus that she usually didn't have when she was writing. And she created, as Thurman calls it, quote, a bleak and ambitious masterpiece. Mm. And then she went on tour with the Vagabond, playing Renee, the character based on herself. And this time, Maurice stayed in Paris. And the separation from Colette was, quote, excruciating for Maurice, who wrote her extravagant letters in which the ecstasy of young love alternated with an equally florid despair. Mm. Which she must have liked, because as we've noted, mostly she's writing the desperate love letters to the husbands who are off doing things. Right. She's not really getting that kind of talk about herself. Yeah. But now she is from Maurice, so that must have felt nice. She also wrote her book, Sido, about her mother, and released it in 1929. And she wrote this book because a bishop asked her if she would ever write something that he could actually read. (laughs) (laughs) And she promised him a book that would be, quote, an orgy of virtue. Wow. <laughs> Which I love, she still had to use the word orgy in there. So right. <laughs> Thurman says that Colette's late 50s were probably the happiest and most productive years of her life. Um, she felt good. You know, she exercised a lot. Uh, she was losing a little weight. She smoked and drank a lot less than she used to. Mm-hmm. And she and Maurice, quote, apparently had an athletic sex life. Oh, oh, oh. Mr. Goodcock All in right. the ring. <laughs> But in 1929, the stock market crashed, obviously causing global financial disruptions, and it bankrupted Maurice's pearl business. He had just bought a cute place of his own, but now he had to sell it to Coco Chanel, and he and Colette took up residency in Paris at the Claridge Hotel. They stayed in adjoining rooms on the same floor, and they expected that they'd only be there for a little while, but they ended up living there for four years. And they needed money, so they hatched a plan to manufacture and sell beauty products under Colette's name. Now, Colette would do the R&D, Maurice would handle the business, and in 1931, they opened the first beauty parlor with her products. And they had several investors, and eventually they picked up three locations. Pretty good. But by 1933, it was clear the business was a disaster. They were going to need a lot more cash to stay afloat, but worse than that, it seems that Colette had a bit of a heavy hand when it came to makeup application. Mm. Natalie Barney, that uh, Parisian queen of the lesbians we talked about in part one, she wrote that she saw Belle Gazou, quote, slathered with livid pink and blue makeup that made her look like a streetwalker. Ouch. (laughs) Damn. And a celebrated actress named Cecile Sorel came out of Colette's beauty parlor, quote, looking twice as old as when she went in. Not the impact you're trying to get. Not really. With Parisian makeup. It's crazy to think that, like, everyone would have been like, oh, my God, Colette has a makeup line? Yes, I'm in. Right. That's like Rihanna coming out with lingerie. Mm -hmm. Like, let's go. Uh, But then 
you see it, and you're like, ooh, ooh not the so left has a makeup line, huh? <laughs> Good. Like, don't quit your day jobs. Yeah, jobs. As writer, good. actress, mm-hmm. philanthropist. I think it's actually because of the acting. She she was oh, doing sure. a lot of stage makeup yeah. on people. Stage makeup is much heavier than regular yeah. everyday makeup because you're having to reach the back of the audience with your face. Right. Especially in this era, I, we just watched the new Downton movie. Yes. And uh, when some of the characters go in for to be on film, the makeup they have on looks insane. It's wild. Yeah. So, yeah, I think she just, she was so used to applying for the stage. She wasn't uh-huh. thinking about how you apply to, like, just look at someone yep. across the table, maybe. I mean, surely she put makeup on, though. That's, I know, I'm confused. Maybe it looked good on her, though. Maybe yeah. she only knows how to do her own face. Some people yeah. can't do makeup on other people. Oh, you know, they you only go. know how to do it on themselves. Right. I don't know. Or maybe she was just trying to oversell it. Maybe. You know? And she was just like, put a lot on because then I'll like, have to buy a bunch. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this bottle should last someone a month, but it's going to last you two weeks if you do it like this. <laughs> yeah, nice and heavy. <laughs> heavy hand. There's an interesting little story about Bertrand mm-hmm. uh, later on in his life bringing a lover of his to meet Colette. Yeah. Uh, her, her name is Martha. And um, Martha was like, oh, Colette hated me on site. And I thought she was an evil person. Like, they, oh, she did, they did not get along right away. But what she, Martha really hated was that Colette told her she had, like, really light hair, very light eyebrows. So Colette uh-huh. told her, draw on some really thick black eyebrows onto your face. Uh-huh. And so she did it until finally a friend comes up to her and is like, what's the hideous thing you've done with your face? <laughs> and she, you know, she's writing it. And she's like, I think she just want to make me look like shit. What a bitch. Like, you know, like she. She's just like an evil bitch. But maybe she really thought that's that looked good. Like maybe, maybe. when you learn about her heavy hand, I'm like, maybe she really was like, no, you, I was really trying to help you. Maybe the entire makeup business was just a setup for her to get some credibility so that she could pull that move oh, on Bertrand's girlfriend. Like, one day Bertrand's going to bring me some bitch that I'm going to destroy. I'm going to establish myself as a makeup person in this city so that when that girl shows up, I'm going to blow her mind, <laughs> ruin her face. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, Speculation stage. <laughs> so anyway, Cola not made for the Mac business, I guess. They dissolved that business. And Colette started writing a daily article for La République and became the chief drama c- critic of Le Journal. So in addition to writing fiction and film scripts, she's going to four or five opening nights a week. Wow. She's seeing 16 to 20 plays a month. Wow. And she's critiquing two or three of them every week in a like in a Sunday column that ran like around 2,000 words. Jeez. She's doing a ton of work at this time. She's nonstop. And again, it's the Depression. They're fucking hard up for cash. So she also right. starts writing ads for money, like advertisements. Oh, Okay. Um, so anyway, she's doing a bunch of writing, but in all that, she rarely talks about what some of us might consider the most interesting things going on around her, which were all the political and social uprisings of that time. Right. Uh, she barely talked about Hitler's growing prominence in Germany, for example, um, because apparently she did not understand what could be interesting about a guy who, quote, didn't seem to like fucking anybody, not even men. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. What a what a way to put it about She's Hitler. Like, He's boring. <laughs> Who does he even fuck? Wow. She also skipped talking about 
the fuel rationing that was going on, the devaluation of the franc, 400,000 unemployed workers, tons of strikes and violent demonstrations going on. Um, The left was consolidating their power and the right was being more and more increasingly explicitly fascist Mm. in their politics. Um, But she just kind of was like not interested in that. She was more interested in crimes of passion and like everyday stuff. Even so, she was starting to get her flowers from the public after her long career. In 1935, she was elected to the Belgian Royal Academy of French Language and Literature. And in a poll that year, she was named the greatest living master of French prose. Wow. Okay. Now, that same year in 1935, the Claridge Hotel went bankrupt. So Colette and Maurice found adjoining apartments to live in. Uh, By now, Maurice is also doing journalism. He is writing for Paris Soir, which is a newspaper with one of the largest circulations in the city. And eventually, he would become the literary editor for Marie Claire magazine. Mm -hmm. And they got invited by their respective journals to cover the maiden voyage of the ocean liner, the SS Normandy, which was going to New York. And Maurice, who's like up to his ears in travel plans at this point, he told Colette that since they weren't married, they'd need separate rooms in the hotel in America. He wrote in his memoir, Close to Colette, quote, But if we got married, I said jokingly, there wouldn't be a problem. Colette looked at me in such a way that I suddenly understood all that this cementation of our relations meant to her. So, on April 3rd, 1935, 10 years after they got together, the 62-year-old Colette and the 45-year-old Maurice got married in a 17-minute ceremony in Town Hall. Aw, yay. It's lovely. I love it. I love that. Mm -hmm. I mean... If you wanted to get married, I suppose it couldn't hurt. Uh We could could at least split a room, you know. (laughs) She's like, well, yeah, I guess I could do the whole let's just get married. I know, right? (laughs) I love it. She was like not wanting to ask him to ask her, Uh but she definitely wanted it. And he finally realized it. And that's so cute. Well, let's pause at that wedding, take a quick commercial break. We'll be back with a whole other wedding Mm -hmm. right after this. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning, is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. It's getting to, to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine, and I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. And welcome back to the show. So Colette and Maurice's marriage was not the only one that happened that year. Belle Gazoo also got married. Um, she married a pompous doctor who was like quite a bit older than her. Mm. Um, but their marriage barely lasted through the honeymoon. Well. Fortunately, though, when she approached her parents about getting a divorce, neither of them cared about any social censure or any kind of consequences <laughs> like that, which to be expected, I would think, of two people who had been divorced a couple times themselves. Right, yeah, seriously. <laughs> but you never know. Some parents don't let you make their mistakes, obviously. So, Not to mention, it sounds like Colette and Henri, like... Never really paid that much attention to Belgazu, so no. they're kind of like, oh, divorced. Oh, you got married? All right. Well, yeah, whatever you want to do. <laughs> but no, she went to Colette and she's like, Mom, you know, I want to divorce this guy. He sucks. I'm not happy. And Colette told Belgazu she's only 22 and therefore she's too young to be unhappy. <laughs> but by 42, she would not be able to help it. Oh, damn. <laughs> it's <a> hard truths. <laughs> True. <laughs> Um, and she's like, you better go tell your father about it. So Balgazu goes to Henri and she says, oh, this marriage sucks. He's boring. And Henri said, quote, being bored by someone can make you think of murder. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. So he's like, you better get out of that marriage before you kill uh-huh. him. So it's kind of like, why did Balgazu even bother marrying this guy in the first place? Like, they barely got along for any length of time. And later, Belgazu's half-brother, Renaud, kind of shed some light on that. He wrote, she told him, quote, I wanted to normalize myself. And that's because she was a lesbian. So she was trying to change her sexuality in Ooh. a way, or uh, she thought maybe it would cover it up, perhaps. Right. Um, not sure if she was trying to normalize herself to herself or to other people. Right. Um, So she would have several same-sex romances throughout her life, most notably with a French actress named Nicole Stéphane. And this is so weird, but one of Belgazu's friends wrote that Colette did not approve of her daughter being a lesbian. Oh, my God. 
He wrote, quote, to be gay, in her view, showed a kind of sexual irresponsibility. That was one of the enormous contradictions in Colette's character. Wow. Which is so weird because she was definitely having plenty of lesbian relationships yeah. herself. And she knew a lot of lesbians yeah. who were exclusively lesbian, where right. she was more bisexual. So did she think Natalie Barney had a sexual irresponsibility? Maybe, because Natalie was really polyamorous. I mean, didn't believe in monogamy. Yeah. So maybe she thought that of every lesbian. I don't know. But right, right. It's a very weird thing to think. It, no, but not uncommon for parents mm-hmm. to be hypocritical of their children exactly. and be like, well, yes, but you shouldn't do it because mm-hmm. it's wrong. Right. You know, even though all my friends and everything did it. <sighs> very weird. Yeah. <clears throat> well, anti fascist activism was getting even more energetic after Mussolini invaded Abyssinia, which is also known as Ethiopia, present-day Ethiopia. Interestingly enough, that'll be a subject in an upcoming episode. I just learned about Ethiopia and Abyssinia. Um, So that happened in 1935. But Colette still didn't really write anything about any of that that was going on. And in fact, she started contributing articles to the extremely anti-Semitic and pro-fascist weekly paper, Gringoire. In an example of this paper in 1936... She shares printing space with, quote, a glowing report from Nuremberg on the annual Nazi rally, a front page expose on the non-French, i.e. Jewish, background of the prime minister, Leon Blum, a cartoon showing Jewish and other anti-fascist refugees from Germany stuffed in a trash can and captioned, France, the garbage dump of Europe, Mm. and a vicious article, one of a series smearing Roger Salnegro, who was the minister of the interior and the architect of many social reforms, including the 40-hour work week. Mm-hmm. And the series was so damaging and nasty and cruel that only a few weeks after it ended, Roger gassed himself to death. Insane shit. Like, yeah. That is yeah, so it's, upsetting. It's brutal. But, you know, hey, France wasn't going to be pulled into all that Hitler mess anyway, Oh, right? yeah. If there's one thing France didn't have to worry about in the mid-1930s, it was what <laughs> Hitler was going to be doing. <laughs> exactly. We can oh. all close our eyes because in 1938, major Western powers worked out a treaty in Munich with Hitler. And they were like, yeah, you can take part of Czechoslovakia, but just stop there, okay? And we won't bother you. <laughs> You're appeased, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> okay, good. Great job, everyone. We solved it. Bye. Mm-hmm. And Colette and Maurice are like, great, it's all good in France. Sucks to be you, Czechoslovakia. And they started traveling again, and everything was fine. Colette also starts struggling with rheumatoid arthritis at this point in her life, and that would become a very big problem for her mm-hmm. as the years go on. Oh, spoiler alert, another big problem. The Treaty of Munich meant fuck all to Hitler. (laughs) On September 1st, 1939, he invaded Poland, which you'll, I don't know how good you are at geography, but it's not Czechoslovakia. (laughs) So that pissed off everyone who signed the Treaty of Munich. And France and England declared war on Germany two days later. Mm -hmm. By now, Maurice was 50, so he was not called into active duty right away. Um, He was in the reserves, the army reserves. But by day three of the war, Paris had its first air raid alert. Mm. And then by June of 1940, the government fled Paris. That's how close the Germans were. So Colette, Maurice, many other Parisians did too. They all kind of went to the country to sort of wait it out and see what would happen. Mm -hmm. But within five weeks, the government surrendered. The Vichy regime was installed. And Colette, Maurice, and many others came back to Paris. Now at this point... 
any newspapers, magazines, or publishing houses that wanted to stay open at all had to become what was known as collaborators. They had to write whatever the Nazi censors would let them write. Plenty of people quit their writing jobs or publishing jobs or editorial jobs because they just had, you know, principles. Right. And they refused to do it. I ain't working for you, bitch. Now, some people wrote just because they needed the money. But Colette not only wrote stories for these outlets, she maintained cordial relations with these editors. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, by the way, Belle Gazou, her daughter, and Renaud de Juvenel, uh, Belle Gazou's half-brother, mm-hmm. they started working with the French resistance. Belle Gazou ran a secret hospital for resistance fighters. I feel like she was probably pretty disappointed in her mom. Oh, yeah. Uh, I would be. Definitely. <laughs> I feel like Belle Gazou was always a little disappointed in That's her mom true. for their relationship, but this definitely was like, what are you doing? I will say I found a quote by Belle Gazou okay. when she was older where she said, I think the most important thing my mother gave to me was a scorn for prejudice, to love or to dislike without having prejudice of any kind enter into it. Mm. So that might be, she she might have kind of been like, well, that's mom. You know, she's she's going to be nice to everybody until she has a reason not to be. Yeah. And it has to be more than like, you're just politically a piece of shit, I guess. Okay, okay. Like you have to be personally a piece of shit. Maybe? Right, right. I don't know. I, we I can't can agree decide to how disagree I, with right. the Nazis. Yeah. I'm like, there's something admirable about not letting prejudice enter one way or another, good or right. bad, enter right. into your feelings about somebody. But, of course, a lot of people died because of these people's thoughts. And it's not like an abstract principle that right. they live. It's some real shit. So yeah. it's a little bit like, mm, not cool. Now, both Colette and Maurice lived openly in Paris and socialized with everyone. Uh, including occupying Germans. And just a reminder that Maurice himself is Jewish. Jewish, yeah. Now, even when the Nazis quickly moved to install race laws, preventing Jews and therefore Maurice from the army or any profession in commerce or journalism, Colette wrote, quote, As long as that's the extent of the sanctions, we'll be consoled. Girl. You know, every time someone said, well, I'm sure that's all the Nazis are going to do. And they were always wrong. Always wrong. Yeah. Judith Thurman quotes a woman named Patrice Blank, who was a hero of the resistance and a close friend of Bertrand de Juvenel, as saying that Colette's willingness to write for the collaborationist press, quote, reflected an unconsciousness shared by a large number of French artists. It was very widespread, and the excuse one heard most often was that the theater should function normally and the voice of French culture should not be stifled. There were very few, and I underline very few, true résistance. Colette belonged to that herd of passive collaborationists who were legion. As the balance of the war began to shift, so did the proportion of those who actively supported the Allies and the Free French forces. But they changed their allegiance out of prudence because Germany was losing and not from conviction. So you've got a lot of fair-weather allies of mm-hmm. whoever happens to be kind of doing better yeah. in the war at that time. They're hedging their bets. Yeah. And they're like, whatever happens, it might not affect me if I am just the right kind of person. Yeah. P.S. It never works. <laughs> no, but it's tough. It, I think it really tests your mettle and your character about like, you know, are you willing to take the losing side here because it's right? Yeah. Or, you know, I think we see it in movies and, mm-hmm. you know, so often that that's an easy choice. 
yes. for people that yeah. it's like, I'm just going to do the right thing because I believe in it. And I think even like good people who believe in the right thing with a gun to their head, it's it's hard. Mm-hmm. It's a hard choice to make. And I, well, and I think a lot of people, too, are like, what's most important is that I survive. Yes. Um, that's what matters. And then at the end, other side of this, then I can be useful. I can but do good right things. now I can't I can't make waves because yeah. then I'll be killed and then what good am I what to anybody? I? Yeah. I mean you can see many, many justifications. Yeah. We are very good at justifying right, things right, that we do. Right. Now Colette started serializing a story called Julie in the Gringoire, that extra shitty newspaper mm. that we talked about before. And Julie apparently does have some pretty gross anti Semitic writing in it. Mm. Um so she did say some gross Gross thing. She didn't just like, here's an article. Like, she did actually say some shit that she thought they would like to hear, I guess. Now, this newspaper was basically blaming all the hunger in France on Jewish people and foreigners eating their food. Oh, my God. Uh, the war in general was uh, because of Jewish people, communists, financiers, and Freemasons all conspiring together. It had wow. very little to do with Germany at all. Um, they basically stopped mentioning Hitler. They're just like, Jewish people did this to you. Wow. And so, you know, it's just crazy that she would lend herself to this paper. Right. It's fucked up. And whatever protection that she thought Maurice was getting by her working with these guys, Mm -hmm. not making waves and just kind of being this passive collaborationist, uh, it didn't last. (laughs) What a surprise. In June 1941, Hitler broke his pact with Stalin and invaded the Soviet Union. Now, Maurice displayed his prescience again, like kind of when he said he was going to one day marry Colette. Right. He told Colette, quote, the war is over. It might still last three or four years more. But for me, secure in the absolute. Hitler has already disappeared. And the German soldiers you see passing by at this moment are nothing but phantoms. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people felt that way because they were like the Soviet. You don't fuck with the Soviet Union. okay? like they're crazy. But as he thought, his prediction would take a few years to come true. In December, the U.S. entered the war. The French resistance started their first acts of armed subversion. Things are getting, they're really popping off. And so the Germans retaliated by arresting a thousand prominent Jewish Parisians. So before dawn on December 12th, the Gestapo came for Maurice. And Colette helped him pack a bag. She walked him out. And they both knew that they might be parting forever. But before we find out what happens with that, let us take a quick commercial break and we will be right back. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. 
In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans, and yet, There's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and challenge all-star. And speaking of all-stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the challenge gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of challenge champion. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the show, everyone. So Maurice was taken to a detention camp northeast of Paris, and Colette immediately started moving heaven and earth to get him out. Maurice wrote, quote, There was no effort and no humiliation she wasn't willing to undertake. He was in the camp for seven weeks, living on a bowl of soup and some bread, sleeping on vermin-infested straw, 36 people to a hut. He was able to smuggle letters to Colette, and through these same clandestine channels, she was able to smuggle him some provisions, like food, books, and then weirdly, she sent him old neckties? Trying to trying to figure out, maybe, just, like, maybe he just wanted to feel sophisticated, you know? Maybe. Like, put the necktie on. Right, or, or uh, yeah, why would you need an old necktie? Was it for... Wounds, maybe? Oh, maybe wounds, um, yeah. Tourniquets? Yeah, right. Were they tying them together so they could escape out a window? Oh. I, I just have real questions about why he asked for these and then why she was like, I guess I'll bother sending them. <laughs> there had to be well, a good reason. You know, a long strip of sturdy fabric uh-huh. has many uses. That's true. But so maybe, maybe you're right and he was just like, I need to feel like a man. Yeah. I want to be fully dressed. Right. I don't know. I don't know. Now, Colette wasn't sleeping. She was in this constant state of anxiety for Maurice. And finally, one of her connections paid off. One German officer, Otto Abetz, had a French wife. And as a favor to her, Otto ordered Maurice's release. 
In February of 1942, Maurice left the camp 18 pounds thinner, but otherwise unharmed. Lucky him. But this was far from over, because in June of that year, Colette had to buy a motorized wheelchair to get around because her arthritis had gotten so bad. And Maurice, along with every other Jewish person, had to start wearing the yellow star. Mm. Now, Colette said Maurice didn't really seem to care and that only people who seemed upset about wearing it, quote, exposed themselves to unpleasantness. Classic like, well, if you don't make a fuss, then it's not a big deal. Just do what they say. Comply uh-huh. and they won't kill you. But well, guess, guess what? what? She was wrong again. Mass deportations of Jews began only a month later and 80,000 French-born men, women, and children were rounded up with an additional 40,000 foreign refugees. Only a tiny percentage of them would return. 30,000 Jews were saved by, quote, courageous French citizens who risked and sometimes lost their own lives in doing so. And among these French citizens risking their lives was Renaud and Belgazou. That's right. Yeah. And Maurice needed help from these courageous people, too. Um, Even with all these connections they had and maintained (laughs) with all their passivity, it was really too dangerous for him to be in Paris. Mm -hmm. There was this young shop assistant who worked at a bookseller's who offered to hide him because they had created a secret hole behind the bookshelves for that very purpose. Mm. And there's going to be a lot of that in France and many places. There's secret places where they hid Jewish people from Nazis. And I would love to do a tour of France and just see those places. Oh, right. That would be so interesting. Right. There's a great book called The Paris Architect, actually, about an architect who starts developing yeah. these secret spots. And it's really so good. But Maurice kind of felt like Colette would only be able to relax if he was in the free zone. He's like, if I'm hiding and stuff, she'll just be so nervous. She'll yeah. be in this constant state. It'll be really bad for her health. I need to just be somewhere she knows I'm safe. So he traveled south on forged papers, and he slipped across the border to spend a few months in Saint-Tropez, away from the occupiers. Because remember, Germany only had control of part of France, not Mm -hmm. all of France at Mm -hmm. this point. But then the Allies landed in North Africa. So Germany started trying to get the whole of France, including the coast, under its own control. So Maurice came back to Paris. Uh, Close calls with border guards, and, you know, Mm -hmm. he had a very misadventure kind of way to get back. Mm-hmm. And then he spent the next 18 months sleeping in the maid's room to avoid detection. Uh, Colette called it the sleep of the condemned. Wow. And he himself wrote that this is a cover story that couldn't fool an ostrich. <laughs> so <laughs> he, he was like, we know that it's not like they're not going to check the maid's room or right. something. But it made me feel better anyway. And Judith Thurman writes that this was, quote, exceptionally gallant. He had survived the camp, he had worn the yellow star, and he must have by now come to understand the scope of the Nazi persecutions. But he also understood that Colette couldn't live without him. So he risked his life to relieve her solitude and her anxiety. Wow. Now, at this point in her life, Colette kind of started flirting with religion. And she cozied up to Francois Mauriac, who was an author and a critic and a pretty powerful emissary of the church. Now, this might have been because she was 70 years old, she had this terrible arthritis, and she was worried about the afterlife, but Judith Thurman thinks it actually had to do more with Maurice than with God. Mm -hmm. This church guy, Francois Mauriac, he's telling people that they shouldn't collaborate with the occupiers, but he's helping Colette, who's doing just that. Mm -hmm. 
So Thurman writes, quote, there's an ironic symmetry to their perspectives on honor and salvation. His are large, spiritual, and austere. Hers are focused on the survival of one essential being, and she would collaborate with anyone, God or the devil, who might help her keep him. Mm. So it's really all about just keeping Maurice safe, no matter who she had to get with. That's right. That's right. And Maurice thought so, too. He wrote that her motives were complex, but being close to some members of the church, quote, might give me some immunity in a moment of great danger was certainly paramount among them. She even asked Maurice to get baptized, and he did agree, but it never happened because he couldn't lie convincingly (laughs) enough to the bishop about why he wanted to be Catholic. (laughs) The priest is like, and uh, and why would you like to be baptized into the Catholic Church under the eyes of God? So the Germans won't murder me. Uh, that's not the exact. Can you tell me? Uh, maybe it's because you believe in God and you want oh, to be baptized oh, and go right, to right, heaven. Right. Yes, Jesus and so on. Yes, absolutely, Jesus. Okay. The guy who lived and died this, for our sins. Uh, <laughs> this is not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, do not believe you. Uh, yeah. In fact, Maurice was such a bad liar that earlier in the war, at a border checkpoint, this Nazi officer kept giving Colette grief about her curly hair and insisting that she was Jewish. But finally, you know, this guard is like, but you must be Jewish because your curly hair, your curly hair. And Maurice just blurts out, quote, I am the Jew. (laughs) You dummy. (laughs) Look at me. And Colette wrote to a friend later, quote, alas, I have married an honest man. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, get your lying face on, bro. We are dealing with Nazis here. Yes. So finally, June 6th, 1944, D-Day came. The Allies stormed Normandy Beach, big day in the war. Also a big day in Colette's life because that same day she heard some news about her past love, Missy, the Marquise de Mornay. Yeah. Now, they had been in touch over the years. Um, Remember, they had kind of a bad breakup, but they did, you know, reconcile and they, they were in touch. Their letters were, quote, suffused with sweetness and devotion, which is nice, but the end of Missy's life was not happy. Uh, she was financially ruined by a bunch of lovers who just wanted her to pay for shit. Wow. Uh, her memory was going. Mm. She apparently had little notes to try to remember how to get around Paris, but she had a really hard time. She knew that to most people, she was this pathetic, grotesque figure. Wow. Um, a lot of they talked about the bravado of her youth was all gone, like, yeah. she, you know, dressing like a man and being really open about her identity. That was all gone. Which I think we can conjecture that she's living in Nazi-occupied France. You know, she can't be herself. That must add to your torment as much as old age and infirmity would. So anyway, on D-Day, Colette learned that Missy had tried to commit suicide, quote, in something like a harakiri, which is the Japanese practice of cutting your stomach open with a sword and letting your intestines fall out. Oh, God. That makes me so sad that she wanted it to be that painful. Um, that method did not work for whatever reason, but Missy tried again with gas a couple of weeks later and she died aged 81. Wow. So that is so sad to me that Missy just had such an end to her life. She was such an interesting person. Yeah. Um, Colette also outlived Willie, who died in 1931, and Henri de Juvenel, who died in 1935. Wow. So she she had the last laugh, I guess, <laughs> of all these lovers. At least with Willie, she did. She she wrote a whole thing about how much he sucked after oh, he wow. died. <laughs> so uh, she got her revenge on him wow. at some point. 
Now, on a lighter note, I guess, uh, mm-hmm. D-Day was the beginning of the end for the Nazis. That's right. By mid-August, Nazis and their collaborators were fleeing France. The German general was told to defend Paris until the last man and then burn it to the ground. But Paris said, hell no. Mm-hmm. They said, absolument non. <laughs> Allez. <laughs> Allez. <laughs> G-T-F-O. <laughs> so free French forces were erecting barriers in working class neighborhoods to prevent the Germans from advancing. And the police refused to help restore order and they went on strike. The resistance radio started playing the French national anthem, La Marseillaise, and people blared it from their open windows. People started ambushing German convoys with Molotov cocktails. I love this energy. <laughs> the Germans fought back with tanks and guns and a lot of people died and Maurice was almost one of them. He went out for a walk and, out of curiosity, stopped to watch a kerfuffle between French undercover police and German forces. But then the Germans set up a machine gun and they started rounding up pedestrians. So Maurice ran and he hid in a bomb shelter where he ended up getting trapped for three days. Damn. During this time, Colette was frantic and she was sending out friends to check like all the morgues and hospitals to see what happened to him. When he finally did come back, he sheepishly told her what had happened, and she started cussing him out. <laughs> you know she was like, I just imagine him being like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I was just curious. I, it, you know, I thought they'd win real quick and it'd be fun to watch. And she's like, you idiot, you fool, you absolute fuck nugget. <laughs> He's like, I deserve it. <laughs> oh, man. But it makes sense. She was so angry. She clearly thought he had, he was already yeah, dead. So yeah, she's like, so out. She's like, you fucking idiot. Don't get curious about the Germans. Just come home. Yeah. But at this point, the war, for France at least, was over. And Colette, at this point, was mostly bedridden. Uh, she worked from her day bed, which was pushed up against the window. She, she could kind of look out into the streets of Paris. Mm-hmm. Um, And she wrote her last memoir, The Blue Lantern, and she was writing the dialogue for the French film adaptation of Gigi, which is one of her best-known novellas. And at the age of 79, she tried for the first time to keep a diary, but she only managed one entry. Quote, I should indeed like, one, to begin again, two, to begin again, three, to begin again. She was in pain a lot of the time from her arthritis, but she refused to take a bunch of painkillers. She was kind of uh, of the athlete's opinion that pain is sort of like a strengthens strength. you. Yeah. yeah. She said, quote, old age is an uncomfortable piece of furniture, <laughs> which I love that. But she rarely complained. She would remember the morning in December when Maurice was taken away by the Gestapo. And as Thurman writes, quote, she consoled herself with the thought that the greatest calamity that could befall her had already happened and had been survived. Mm. The date of his arrest became a mantra. Now, Maurice is 60 years old. He's a healthy guy. And apparently he pursued extramarital affairs even before she was bedridden that Colette knew all about. So okay. they still had a bit of an open, very French marriage. Yeah. But this time she never really got jealous the way she had with Henry and Willie. Okay. And, I, you know, I don't know why. I think maybe it's because she knew that she was the main woman in his life. Right. You know, the one he really really loved and wanted to be with and wanted to live with and yeah. wanted to be married to. And she was kind of like, whoever you're fucking, I don't care. Right. Whereas the other husbands, they would kind of 
their interest would kind of wane in her and right. be picked up by these other ladies. And that felt more of an abandonment than the sex part. Yeah, it's one thing when you're spending your time with your partner and you're loving and engaged with each other and passionate with each other. And then like other nights, you know, when, oh, you're, you've got plans? Cool, I'm going to go out. And mm-hmm. oh, hey, I hooked up with somebody. As opposed to, I think like her previous husbands, like you said, were like, oh, it's you again. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, I'm going out for a while. I might yeah. sleep with somebody else. Yeah. You know, there's a difference there. And Big I'm going to get real hot and heavy with them and promise to marry them. Right. Stuff. Like, right. You know, Maurice never did that. She said she thought it was her virility that like he he would pick like a very feminine woman to sleep with. Okay. But he could never live with a woman like that. He could mm. only be with a woman like Colette, who is very right. like vibrant and more, I guess, quote unquote, masculine in a way or something. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I, I think it's because she knew she was the most important woman. So she was like, I don't care if there's other women. I just want to be the main one, yeah. you know, in your life. In his memoir, Maurice wrote, quote, I set myself gently by the side of this woman who life had so wounded, and I did so with the firm determination of proving to her that constancy was not an empty word. Mm. Year by year, she grew more persuaded of this, and her last books bear witness to a serenity that she would not otherwise have acquired. And Judith Thurman and several other biographers, they think Maurice has every right to say this. They're like, you can see in her letters and in her writing, just like he said, that he truly did bring a measure of peace and stability and real love to her life that she had never really had before. Yeah. And for the last 25 years of her life, Colette paid him the honor, which he earned the hard way, of calling him my best friend. Oh. Which is interesting, too, that she found she had so many romantic words for past lovers, but yeah. she, they weren't her friends. Right. And now it's like more romantic to be calling him her friend. Mm-hmm. That's very important to be friends, I think. True. Now, in spring of 1945, the Allies were advancing on Berlin, and the first deportees from concentration camps started arriving in France. Paris had been somewhat shielded from the reality of what the Nazis were doing, so the condition of these prisoners when they showed up shocked the entire city. A lot of people were calling for just the harshest possible sentences on these collaborators, on anyone who helped the Germans. Some who were questioned and released received death threats and went into hiding, like Coco Chanel. Mm -hmm. Others had their heads shaved, their homes ransacked, they were imprisoned for life or put to death or committed suicide. Yeah, there's a bad time to be someone who thought that the Nazis would win, I guess. And Belka Zhu was one of these hardliners. She didn't take, she wasn't standing up for any of this Mm -hmm. shit. Remember, she had run that secret hospital for resistance fighters during the war. So following the liberation of Paris, she founded a relief organization and worked to feed the starving. Also, Belgazou was one of the first French journalists to report from the camps. Ooh, so she saw some crazy shit. And the atrocities of what happened at them were not, like, abstract for her. That that was, she totally knew what was going on. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, dozens of her closest friends in the resistance had been deported to Buchenwald, and almost none of them returned. The ones who did were broken and haunted. They had terrible injuries. Colette described seeing some women survivors outside a cafe who, quote, raised their skirts to show their legs, devoured up to the groin by the camp dogs. Whoa, that is so horrible. You got to hope 
that Colette here is even second guessing what she was what willing she to did. put up with. Yeah. Because again, obviously, a big part of what the Nazis did was very powerful mind games and propaganda to convince everyone that they weren't doing the horrible things that they were doing. That's and that, right. that was all like, oh, that's just fake news. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not torturing and murdering people by the thousand. Um, but they were. Mm-hmm. And so people like Colette now who bought into that. Right. Uh, hopefully we're seeing the reality of it and felt felt a kind of way about it, you know? You hope. But regardless of this attitude towards previous collaborators, on May 2nd, Colette was nominated to the Académie Goncourt, which gave out an annual award for the best novel, which is the most prestigious literary award in France. The guy who started it stipulated that no women, Jews, or poets could ever be members. Women, Jews, and poets, the three people I hate. (laughs) Right. Um, But not only was Colette added to the Academy, she became its president in 1948. Take take that, that. Goncourt. Right? (laughs) Thurman writes, quote, The enthusiasm which greeted Colette's election to Goncourt is one measure of how unscathed her reputation was by her contributions to the occupation press. And I wonder why. You know, is it just her celebrity was enough that Mm -hmm. people were like, eh, she didn't mean it? Or was maybe she just didn't do as bad shit as some people did. So it was like, right. fine, you just wrote and said some dumb shit, right, but whatever. Right. I, I'm not sure. But she was just beginning to receive her flowers from Paris. Mm. Um, they were really all about Colette in the end of her life. In 1948, when she turned 75, the city threw itself into this big public homage to her. Wow. And they did like a revival of Cherie. Colette went to the opening and, quote, received a standing ovation from three generations of Le Tu Paris. Among them, Shirley, was at least one ancient dandy with tears in his eyes who remembered those perfect breasts she had once so insolently and proudly bared. <laughs> Which I do love that that visual of some old guy like, ah, she's old now, but I remember, I remember those, those good tits. <laughs> I saw her in 1915. She pulled her titty out for everyone to see. Uh, now that that was theater. <laughs> when Back theater in the day. was theater. Real theater. I don't know why he's transatlantic. Know, right? <laughs> Real theater. Now that same year, Maurice started to put together a collection of all her work, like her fiction, her war reports, her theater reviews, like everything she'd written. Wow. For a fifth. 15-volume set that would be published by his new company, Le Fleuron. And when Colette saw it all assembled, she could barely believe it. She said, quote, Have I really written all that? Well. Unfortunately, at this point, though, arthritis had finally gotten to her right shoulder, and she was not writing anymore. Now, it had become Maurice's main project to get all Colette's shit together. Mm -hmm. Now, Colette had been a bad bookkeeper, but she did have a lot of copyrights and assets, and she wanted to leave half to Maurice and half to Belgazoo. So she made Maurice the executor of her will, and he got to work consolidating her reputation and her fortune. He renegotiated her contracts and arranged for new translations of her work in England, America, and Germany. And he went after her film rights with a vengeance. Between 1947 and 1954, six of her novels were brought to the screen. And even Hollywood came calling, wanting to do an adaptation of Gigi. That 
is when Colette made arguably her biggest contribution to film history. In 1951, Maurice was wheeling her through the lobby of the Hotel de Paris in Monte Carlo, where they were shooting a film. And as Colette watched, she noticed this beautiful young actress switching seamlessly between French and English. And without hesitation, she looked up to Maurice and she said she had found, quote, our Gigi for America. That actress was Audrey Hepburn. Ugh. Thank you, Colette. I love Thank Audrey you. Hepburn. Oh my God, she's amazing. Apparently, she had like a very small part in this Monte Carlo movie. Damn, and Colette shooting. just happened to be rolling Colette through. Was like that bitch right there is a star. <laughs> amazing. <laughs> Colette could be right sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Maurice went on taking care of Colette's every need. She wrote to a friend, "Quote: I married a saint." And he sometimes received mail addressed to Monsieur Colette, and he swore he did not mind that uh, she was this big name in their marriage, and he was a little bit less of one, I guess. Mm -hmm. But he said it didn't bother him. Sometimes she would ask him, am I going to die? And he would reply, not until I give you permission, (laughs) which I think says something about the way they talk to each other, their relationship. A French filmmaker created a documentary of Colette's life, and at the premiere, she famously remarked to a journalist, quote, what a beautiful life I've had. It's a pity I didn't notice it sooner. Well, Ain't that the way? Yeah. On her 80th birthday, she received even greater homage from Paris. In 1953, she was made a grand officer of the French Légion d'honneur, which is like the highest civil honor in France that you can get. Wow. Um, In her lifetime, she had produced over 50 novels, collections of short stories, screenplays, articles, and reviews. So she is just—her body of work is undeniable. Right. But near the end, Colette was less and less lucid. She was sleeping more. She was unable to digest solid food. But on August 2nd, she had a good hour looking at a book with Maurice— A thunderstorm was brewing. Colette swept her arm up as if to showcase the entire outside world and spoke her final coherent word, regard. Mm -hmm. Which is truly a fitting final word for a woman whose underlying message in all of her work, according to Victoria Best on her Lit Love blog, was to, quote, make the very best of what you've got, live with all your senses engaged, let nothing pass you by. And the next day, August 3rd, 1954, Colette died. She was denied Catholic funeral rights because of her divorces, but France was not going to let her go with no fanfare. Mm -hmm. They gave her the first state funeral ever given in France for a woman. More than 6,000 mourners showed up as she was buried in Père Lachaise Cemetery. Judith Thurman ends her biography with what we thought were fitting words. Quote, As the dirt was shoveled into the grave, the rain began. The winds rose and a storm broke, one of the most violent in a century. She would have enjoyed it. She would have lifted her arm and said, Oh my God! Yeah. Yeah. What a woman. Mm. It's it's so interesting to me that despite her collaborations, however however strong they were, Mm -hmm. you know, whether it was just like, I'm just just gonna quietly kind of just try and do some work and keep my head down and yeah. like say what they want to hear as minimally as possible or whether she was like yeah I'm on board with this it's all Jewish people's fault like either way it's surprising to me that France uh, afterwards was like 
honor the fuck out of this woman, give yeah. her everything she ever wanted. And I mean, you know, I guess it just shows her contributions outweighed her, uh, what I don't know if you call them missteps or mistakes or <laughs> right. poor judgment or just that might be blinders. Right. And that might be enough. They, they might also have been like, she's old. Like, what, <laughs> yeah, what are you, right. you going to kill Colette because she wrote some articles? She's 80 years old. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Maybe they were kind of just like, leave her be. Go after the 20 and 30 right. year old people. But the, the, the celebration, the extent it's of that was, was intense. But, yeah, they just you know, kind of were like, fuck it. Forget that. You know, in recent years of really, I think, Coco Chanel, and I think we've got her on our list with mm-hmm. her Nazi boyfriend. But uh, she was uh, more vilified, especially in recent decades. Yeah, um, well, she actually was she did, fascist. She did some real, yeah, yeah, exactly. She, she was fully on board. Yes. So it's a bit different. Yeah, I think. Colette, oh no, definitely majorly different. Colette was just trying to get by, right? You know, in a in a crazy world, she was too old to make a big change or to make a big stand. I'm not sure she would have done it if you right. know if she had been younger. But at the time, you know, it's maybe understandable that she was like, "I just want to die in peace." <laughs> right. Right. Well, and to protect Maurice, and you to know, protect Maurice, it, it, that. Yeah. Again, misguided as it was, mm-hmm. uh, a big, again, the propaganda machine was strong. And yeah. there would have been people like Colette saying like, well, I've got a Jewish husband, so as long as I do what they say, we'll be fine. Yeah. She's big in respectability politics. Yeah. I think she thought if you're the right kind of Jewish person or the right kind mm-hmm. of person, they won't bother you. And yep. she was proved wrong many times yep. over and she just kept thinking it. Yep. So I, that's the most frustrating thing to me is that she kept being like, only people who are mad at getting getting or getting in trouble. Oh, these sanctions won't be more than this. Right. Oh, they'll leave us be. Oh, I can ask my friends. Like she just kept thinking like that they were going to be wrapped in cotton wool and completely avoid yeah. what was going on. And it simply was not true. And, you know, just in terms of that mindset, she did not have the history of the Nazis to look back on no, and learn true. from. Very true. You know, she was in it for the first time, arguably, mm-hmm. seeing it and being like, no, I, you know, it's not going to be that. That couldn't possibly happen. Right. And now I think we can definitely look back and say, but it did happen. And everyone who said that can't possibly happen was objectively wrong. <laughs> exactly. Um, but they didn't have that history to, to look back on. Right. And, and, you know, and if you're talking to someone racist who thinks all Jewish people are from the devil or something, they're not ever going to think you're the right kind of Jewish right. person. Right. They're just only going to think you're Jewish. So yep. that's all I need to know about you. Yep. There's no right way to be. You yep. know what I mean? To, yep. That will protect you. Right. So even Maurice had a little bit of that. Like yep. he thought, I can, I'll get away with it. I'm not that Jewish or something. Uh, right. Whatever it, it was. didn't matter, you yep. know. Yep. So... Yeah, it's uh it's very interesting. The Colette had some tunnel vision, I think, mm-hmm. for sure. Um spe- speaking of her not approving Belgazu being a lesbian. Right. Um is kind of one of these things. Right. Like apparently at some point she did meet Radcliffe Hall, the lesbian author, uh-huh. uh at Natalie Barney's. And she was like, oh, Radcliffe Hall keeps writing about her homosexuality like she's really ashamed of it. And I just uh-huh. don't think that real gay people feel that way about their sex. Like oh, wow. she's clearly so grossed out that she has sex with women. And that's that's just that's not real. Like, that's not how you really feel about that. And Judith Thurman is like, well, you know, she grew up. She she came to herself sexually in the middle of. Belle Epoque Paris, where it was totally fine to have lesbian relationships and yeah. nobody felt any type of way about it. So, of course, she felt differently than 
Radcliffe Hall, who grew up in Puritan America, uh-huh. surrounded by people who thought it was really gross and bad. Yeah. And so, of course, she would internalize that homophobia and not be able to, you know, she that right. was her struggle. That was her life struggle. But, like, Colette could not enter into it at all because that was not her personal experience. Mm-hmm. So she kind of had to, like, personally experience things before she was like, oh, that's a true thing that really happens, I guess. <laughs> uh, fascinating. Yeah. I she's mean, an interesting uh, she's, person. What, what a complicated character i mean mm-hmm. you know this, you can't summarize it you just got to go back and listen to all four parts of this it's so um or read one of these books judith thurman's book i'm it excited to uh, uh watch this kira knightley movie at some point i love kira knightley uh, i know she's she's great she's very good so um but fascinating what a what a interesting and complicated person yeah and I, i'm really glad that we dived into her because she's just not uh she's not um cut and dried you right. know, you, you really have to take it all in and, yeah. and it's all part of her. And she was never going to allow herself to be boxed into right. anything small. She was a yeah. big person, a big personality. And yeah, there's, you know, she needed four parts. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope you all enjoyed them yeah, as much as we did. So. This was a really cool one. Like you said, to get sucked into this one was was great. It was definitely worth uh, the time, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. but always we want to hear from you all, like what you thought of this. Um, what'd you think of the four parts? Here's a question. You know, if we do a series in the future, I liked breaking it up, doing the Wednesdays and then having another episode on Fridays. Mm -hmm. But I don't know, maybe people are thinking like, just get to it. Just give me four in a row. Yeah. You know, so if you've got thoughts on that, send them our way too. Definitely. Um, and obviously just any thoughts about this episode or suggestions for future episodes or just kind words or we are getting we're getting some talk about pineapple pizza okay (laughs) we did get a little talk about pineapple pizza i'm gonna save it for our next episode because we've been here a while but uh but we'll (laughs) you know if you got more thoughts send them our way we'll 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 talk we're willing to to discuss willing to listen yeah (laughs) we're always learning here our ridiculous romance so thanks for tuning in please yeah. do shoot us a message ridicromance at gmail.com right or twitter and instagram i'm at dynamite boom and i'm at oh great it's eli and the show is at ridiculous can't wait to hear from you all and we can't wait to bring you another episode we love you Bye-bye. bye so long friends it's time to go thanks for listening to our show tell your friends neighbors uncles and dance to listen to our show ridiculous romance I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford 
a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.